This episode has adult language. Please wear any headphones if you have any kiddos nearby. Hello, and welcome to the Real Talk with Tamara podcast. I'm Tamara, a photographer and creative director for beauty, wellness, and lifestyle brands and professionals, and your host of Real Talk with Tamara. So this podcast covers actionable, down-to-earth business and lifestyle advice for creative entrepreneurs who aspire to make an impact in their communities while keeping it real, of course. A little housekeeping before we get into it. Please follow or subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and comments are currency. So please leave a comment. You may just get a shout out on an upcoming episode. Hey y'all, welcome to a special edition of the Real Talk with Tamara podcast. This has definitely been a trying and tiring week for Black America and really what this week and any other week um, in America reminds me um, of a favorite quote um, by Will Smith that pretty much says racism never really went away. It's simply being recorded. And the reality is we as a nation cannot move forward. We cannot truly begin the healing process until racist systems and white supremacy is dismantled. And this episode is really special because I'm having this conversation with Monique Melton, who is not only a friend and an amazing woman, she is an amazing anti-racism educator. We discussed so many things within the 60-minute episode, including the practice of anti-racism, the assumptions around participating in this work, how anti-Blackness materializes in our own communities, self-care and what that looks like, and how white women can begin using their privilege to begin dismantling oppressive systems, especially in the digital space. I really hope that this episode brings about healing, awareness, and change within all who hear it. And before jumping into this episode, let me just share a little bit more about Monique. Monique Melton is an anti-racism educator, published author, international speaker, and host of the Shine Brighter Together podcast. She is also the founder of the Shine Brighter Together, which is a community dedicated to healthy relationships and diverse unity. She travels the world speaking at conferences and events on topics related to anti-racism, personal growth, diversity, and relationships. She's been published in magazines, featured in blogs and podcasts, and has touched the lives of people all over the world. She is a natural, big, bold dreamer and a deeply rooted woman of faith. She is a proud Navy wife to her high school sweetheart, and she is a loving mother to two little ones. She has a BA in social science with an emphasis in sociology and psychology and two years of graduate school education in clinical counseling from Johns Hopkins University. She believes it's not all about your comfort, but it's about your growth. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode. Monique, first, I want to wish you a happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I celebrated a birthday this past weekend, um, and your family, <laughs> they're such a <laughs> and they're hilarious. Um, but I wanted to just say that to you, first and foremost, before going into this much needed, much necessary conversation. Um, I, I'm really personally excited to have this conversation with you, but also very pensive. 
um, because you know this covers a topic that I feel like can be uncomfortable for people to either listen to or confront. And I think that it's very important for us to understand how not talking about it can be detrimental <laughs> to marginalized communities like on every level, you know, social, mm -hmm. economic, political. And we see how that is on pretty much pure public display right now with COVID-19 and the continuation of police brutality. And, you know, it's like every week there is something. Um, but, and also too, like, I wanted to have this conversation because I think that there's some inner work that myself as a, a Black woman should do or has to do, especially as a Black woman in the creative space, <laughs> who is looking to like continuing to amplify my own voice and the voice of other Black and Brown women at the same time. So if, if I may sound green behind the ears, I just please ask that you give me space. But, um, you know, I, I want to expose some things with this conversation and offer some sort of education, for lack of a better word, for, for people in the audience, because I know there's also white women that follow me as well. Yeah. So with all that being said, I want us to just start real easy. <laughs> so, take a deep breath, deep, deep breath. <laughs> okay, so when someone says, you know, anti-racism, what is that? Like, I have an idea and understanding of what that is, but what is anti-racism or the practice of of doing anti-racism and yeah. also define your role for people who may not understand what what that is that you do okay that's a great question i think it's a really powerful question because a lot of people hear the word and have a number of reactions to it and often it sums up to just not quite sure what it is and we can't do something that we don't understand what it is so i actually use a definition that I, um, I, I've used in all my programs. I even define it on, um, define it in my, my podcast as well, but to just really pretty much sum it up, anti-racism is a process, is a practice. Like you mentioned, it's a practice. It's not an identity. It's not a noun. It's not how you describe yourself, but it's what you do. It's a process of doing two primary things. It's one, identifying and eliminating racism. And the way that we go about doing that with anti-racism through the definition is by um, identifying and eliminating racism within policies, within systems, within attitudes, within structures, relationships. And the result that we're looking for with anti-racism is not equality. I don't want what white people have. Mm -hmm. I, want, I want equity. I want for um, the liberation of black people, people of color, and I also want for us to have resources redistributed and shared equitably. So mm -hmm. anti-racism is this whole process of getting us there and dismantling white supremacy, the structure, the, the false theology that all of this um, pain and suffering stems from. And it's that process of pulling back those layers one at a time, multiple at a time, daily, all the time. It's an ongoing process. So me, my role, what I do is I create educational learning opportunities for people to, one, understand what anti-racism is and how to actually engage in it by learning the tools. So I do that with my Shinebox. And then I also 
help people understand how to apply those tools in real life. And so we do that through a number of things such as my Unity Over Comfort program or even the part two to that in-person opportunities. But ultimately my role is to facilitate education and to let people know that the journey doesn't end or stop with me, but that it's an ongoing practice. And my hope is that I'll give you the tools so you can be empowered to do this work. But I don't do this for white people to feel enlightened or to feel informed or to feel educated or to feel absolved of their responsibility of or their or their their perpetuation and their risk in their um, connection to racism but instead i do this for black people i do this for people of color i do this so that we can live free in our humanity so that we can live fully in our blackness live fully in our identities and so that we can fully be about our humanity and do I do this work for us. And a lot of times people will thank me like, oh, white people will thank me like, oh, thank you for teaching me. Thank you for doing this for me. No, 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 no. I do this for me. And the reason why I make that distinction is because a lot of times people will ask me to center white people's feelings and their emotions about this work. But instead, my focus is to get white folks to do this work and focus on the reason why we do this work, Mm -hmm. not not how you feel. Mm -hmm. So that's a a long answer to what (laughs) anti-racism is, but I hope you got it from there. Yeah, I think there has to be a distinction between how you feel and actually doing the work because things that are of value that are for the common good does not necessarily equate to being comfortable. And I find that that's usually what we hear a lot from white people, even the ones that claim to be as liberal, liberal, excuse me, as they claim to be, right? It's that, oh, well, that's not how I interact in my group of friends. However, that's not really enough. You have to really take a, a stance and you have to be willing to, you know, leave behind or pull with you um, people who need to understand this work and understand that it's not for the benefit of you being comfortable, right? Like Black people have been you know, pursuing and thriving for over 400 years, Mm -hmm. right? Having to deal with conflicted feelings, you know, of, you know, I'm so happy that I'm able to thrive in this community, but yet, you know, a town over from me, another Black man is dead, right? Right. And so I, I think there needs to be an understanding that just because you feel uncomfortable does not mean that you shouldn't participate in doing the work. And so this segues into um, the question or, or the assumption, or there are some assumptions I feel like when it comes to dismantling these racist systems, um, including the idea of whose responsibility it is. And so what would you say, you know, in your your experience and and your your teachings, like what are two assumptions that people usually assume when it comes to doing this work? Oh, there are a lot of assumptions. Mm -hmm. I, um, and a lot of mistakes um, that people make when they're getting involved in this work. But I would say one of the very, one of the most common assumptions that people who hold white privilege and people who align their lives with white culture, so that it's not just white people, um, is that we just got here somehow. 
Like this is just a natural phenomenon that was just people hating other people and it's fear and it's, you know, all of this. And so um, when people act and respond to white supremacy in that way, what they are forgetting is that white supremacy is a false theology that white, the white race, that white people are inherently superior and should be dominant over other races. And they assert their dominance through all sorts of methods mm -hmm. and white supremacy shapes white culture. Mm -hmm. And people forget that this false theology, although it's false, has real social constructs that are deliberate, that are designed to be this way. People will say, oh, the system is broken. No, the system is working exactly how it was designed to work. Mm -hmm. You know, it was for the benefit of white cisgender wealthy men at the expense of the most marginalized, and that will be black women. And so one of the most common assumptions is that this work, this, this system, this world that we're experiencing just happened. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of people will say sin or people will say greed or selfishness. And sure, you can mix that all in the pot if you want to. But the main ingredient, the pot itself is white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And and that is done and create and it is constructed in everything that and how we incorporate and how we live in this world and how society is structured. It in, it informs all of it and it is very deliberate. Everything from systemic policies that have intentionally, not even just um, indirectly, but have intentionally and directly barred Black people from being able to fully integrate socially, economically, political, politically, economic, all of those things into society. And if you go all the way back to Abraham Lincoln, when he, you know, signed the Emancipation of Proclamation, saying, you know, his, his quote, not, I can't say it exactly, but his quote was that he was not for the full integration of black people, never have been and never will be. And so people like to look at, you know, white folks back in the day and all, and make them as if they were these abolitionists with these pure and moral hearts that were for blackness. But the truth is it's not, it's never been the case. And so I think that people need to understand history to, to um, get rid of those assumptions. So that, that would be one is that this is just, this is just happening and that it's not by design. This is certainly by design, what we are experiencing in this country and around the world because anti-blackness is a global crisis. And I would say a second assumption then that pretty much comes from that is that you're powerless, that you have absolutely no ability to make real and true significant change. People think, we're, oh, I'm just one person. It's just me and my family. What could I really do? And people fail to realize is that if everyone takes that stance, then we won't get anything. Mm -hmm. We won't, we won't move anything forward. And so you don't, you don't look at your own life and say, well, I don't think I'll make that much of a difference. So I'll do nothing. I'll just uphold this oppressive system. But instead you decide that I'll do everything with what I have and for the rest of my life and all of my life. And I'll teach my children or those who are around me because we all have influence. We all have realms of influence that we can impact. But if you take that stance of, oh, I have nothing I can give, what can I really do? Then one, you're just being complicit in a society that is benefiting you at the expense of people who look like me. Mm -hmm. But two, you're not making, you're not being a part of change, but instead you're just being a part of the, the problem. Mm -hmm. And so I would say those are two common assumptions that people have about 
um, white supremacy in, in this work in and of itself. Yeah, and I think it's really important what you said about the first assumption because there is a, there has been a resurgence of um, marginalized communities, especially in the Black community, sharing more of the accurate depiction of our history um, because growing up, as, as you said, the system is working technically as it's supposed to be, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is oppressing you know, black and brown communities. And so even growing up and going to school, there has always been this erasure of history, even saying that our history started when, you know, the first enslaved people came to Jamestown, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they don't really share that dialogue and that's the dialogue of how we came from kings and queens and, you know, had all of these very modernized for that time um, systems. Mm -hmm. And that really is because they were, you know, setting the tone to make us feel like that we are inferior. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is so important to really, that you mentioned that there, there is an erasure of our history. And so that is how these systems are so able to pretty much thrive, right? Yeah. Like, and that's such a terrible thing to say, but you know, that is one of the reasons why it's able to thrive is because we we sadly don't have a strong grasp on our history. And the, and the more that we learn, the, the stronger we are and the less inferior we subconsciously feel um, because it's not necessarily felt on a subconscious on a conscious level. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And so transitioning like with those things, I think you know, speaking from my perspective, because something that I shared prior to starting the interview is that, you know, not everyone, you know, has the desire to like be on the front line. So meaning like actively go into protest or maybe, you know, investing their time in political organizations but they still want to find a way of supporting the system to try to dismantle it in their own way. And so I actually want to shift the conversation specifically to the digital space. And this is something that you and I talk about on the side a lot, because I, I do believe that while our generation, the millennial generation, is, you know, one of the first to actually experience freedom quote unquote mm -hmm. um and and choosing our lives paths with somewhat limited obstruction relatively speaking <laughs> like everything is right i know i'm like wait a minute you know <laughs> like everything is in quotes because it's like uh you know um but we've seen on very on several occasions really where racism doesn't need to necessarily be overt like it can be very covert you know, it can be, like, examples can be, you know, erasure of someone's name on a quote. Right, right. <laughs> you know, um, right. and, or, you know, being ignored or being cast aside, not mm -hmm. being, you know, uplifted for the work that you are doing within the community, mm -hmm. making it as your own, right? And there's still this desire, you know, speaking for myself, as wanting to grow in this space, but still being able to keep my identity and being respected for it. 
Right. Um, and so this may push buttons, but I think this is something that we, we need to talk about because when we do recognize from your opinion, when we do recognize these transgressions that are happening, like how can we hold people accountable and personally not feel guilty, you know, like not yeah. feel like, oh, we're going to lose a percentage of our audiences or we're going to miss out on sales. You know, I don't know if that's a fair question to ask, but you know, how, how can we hold people accountable and not care to make someone feel bad for something that they should not be doing? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there um, with that. And I'll try to remember it all as I kind of explain my answer, but I want to mention something. I was at a, con a, a event that was hosting Ta-Nehisi Coates um, and talking about his his recently released book, um, The Water Dancer. And one of the things that he mentioned was one of the tools of white supremacy is to make us forget. Mm. And that is one thing that is so important when it comes to learning about our history. And not just us Black folks, but white people too need to learn the history the true history, not the whitewashed history, and learn how to use t history as a tool instead of and weaponizing history. But to answer the question, there's a lot there. One thing that I do that has freed me from feeling like I need to prioritize black people or white people, so let me be clear, that's freed me from prioritizing white people or people who hold white privilege or people who wish to hold up white people's feelings over my own life or my humanity or my lived experience. One thing that's freed me from preoccupying myself with that is doing my own work of, an, of in, unpacking and healing from internalized anti-blackness mm -hmm. because internalized anti-blackness literally tells you that your life your needs, your wants, your, your safety, your humanity is not important. And that it is not something that you deserve. It is something you need to work for. And it needs to be done with the permission and through the affirmation of whiteness. And I refuse, I refuse to operate like that. Once you know, you, you do better, right? Maya Angelou says, once you know better, you do better. So when I learned, the more I've learned about my own internalized anti-Blackness and the way that white culture has influenced the way that Black culture has been shaped and developed, because we have to understand Black culture has been shaped in this country within the context of a white supremacist society. Of course, there's been impact on us positive and negative we've 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 and when i say positive i mean that we turned it into something positive and uplifting but there's been negative impacts of internalized white supremacy and it has influenced the way that we interact with ourselves and with one another and so when i see something online that a white person has done that is racist is wrong is painful is hurtful if I, if I choose, if Monique Melton says that I want to contribute to this conversation in a way that centers myself, that centers my needs, centers my people, then I'll do it however I choose. Mm -hmm. However I choose. White people do not get to decide how Black people get to experience and respond to the experience of racism. 
we don't get, they, you don't get to decide how I'm going to respond and how I'm going to feel about your dominance and your power and your exertion of power and dominance and control over me. You don't get to decide that. And so I don't feel guilty because there's nothing to feel guilty about. Now, if you were going out and stabbing somebody, then that's different. <laughs> you know, yeah, you probably should be feeling guilty about that. But you claiming or reclaiming, because they've tried to take everything from us, your voice and making it known that, hey, this hurts me, stop. There's nothing to feel guilty about there. And for those who will say things like, oh, well, you're going to make them feel shame. No, no, no. Shame is something that they choose to, to derail themselves from doing the work. Almost shame. Like distraction. Yeah, it's absolutely a distraction. It feels valid. And I teach my students how to navigate shame. And, but shame is centering white people's feelings. That's what they're doing when they feel that shame and that guilt and they get swelled up with all that. Instead of saying, no, I need to focus on this work, not how I feel about this work. Mm -hmm. I need to focus on the pain that I've done, not how I feel about the pain that I've done. Mm -hmm. You know, because when, because white women in particular get to do and say anything they want about black women, black men, non-binary folks who are black. and they have a whole allegiance of white folks and those who will coddle white folks to protect them. No one's going to bat for us. Mm -hmm. No one's saying to the white person, I don't really like the way you said that to that black person. Mm -hmm. No one's saying that to them. But when it comes to us, we get tone police. Oh, well, did you have to say it that way? I surely did mm -hmm. because that's the way I wanted to say it. Mm -hmm. You know, so I feel like you do it the way you want to do it. But understand this. There are real consequences. There are. There's no, there's, there's no avoiding that. You may lose business. You may lose clients. You may lose friends. I mean, there are, the stakes are high for us. Mm -hmm. You know, but we can't allow that to stop us. It certainly didn't stop our ancestors. Right. You know, if they can go out there and protest and be fire hosed, which no one should have ever experienced that. But if they can go out there and sit at restaurants, not because they are demanding that it be open because they're hungry, but because I should be able to eat anywhere I want to and, and not be told that I have to eat in a certain area because I'm black. If, if, and then be attacked and be beaten. And if, if, if my ancestors can continue to do this work when literally you're being lynched and murdered. If my ancestors can go out there and vote, even though the night before elections, KKK will go out and kill and murder and intimidate black folks to keep them from out of the voting box. If my ancestors could do all of that, I certainly can write an Instagram post. Mm -hmm. I certainly can comment on an Instagram. I certainly can send an email. I certainly can do, like, seriously, we have to remember where we came from and we have to remember what we're fighting for. Yeah, I mean, that was a very powerful and emotional statement um, because, you know, I, I've had this conversation with other um, friends of mine, uh, Black women, young and old, and, you know, one of the things that we talk about is that 
there seems to be either, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I can only speak from my perspective, is that there seems to be either a lack of urgency or a feeling of complacency, meaning that, (laughs) you know, we have experienced some good things, quote unquote, right? Like there's some sort of upward mobility. And so because we, you know, now have these things, it's almost as if we have forgotten that these issues and these system systemic oppressive systems still exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, it begs the question, you know, yes, I, I believe, I believe that it is up to white people to dismantle these systems. But I also think that we need to hold space for each other to hold each other accountable. Yeah. You know, like, you know, not to get emotional, but there shouldn't be a reason why, you know, there is a difference of how we see, you know, our brothers and sisters who live in poverty yeah. versus those who may be considered upper middle class, knowing yeah. that we are all part of the same family. Yeah. And if we do not galvanize each other, th- the system will continue to thrive in the way that it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, I feel that I, and I, I appreciate your vulnerability and you sharing your, your heart. Um, and I, I'm, I'm so grateful for you um, and sharing this and putting this out there because, you know, I think about Emmett Till's mom. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she shared was that she thought that, you know, that was just down in the South. That was what was going on down there. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly not in the North. And then, I mean, we know the story of Emmett yeah. Till. And it's still a crushing, devastating story. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to know it and it needs to be told mm-hmm. um, because it's still happening today. Um, but you know, when I began doing this work very specifically directly, like I've been indirectly and, uh, and, and in conjunction with other things doing this work as far as educating and talking about race. But when I decided to shift gears, cause you, you've seen me and how I've grown from one business into another. Mm-hmm. When I started doing this, one of the people, one of the, the, the folks, the black folks that I thought would just be right on board with me um, and support me, I was devastatingly wrong. I was shocked to get backlash from black people. I was shocked to get backlash. And it, it made me realize that much more of how damaging anti-blackness is and how white supremacy will pit us against each other, even in our pursuit for li- black liberation. Right. We will, it will pit us against each other. And, um, and so that also is, a, that's, a, that's a tool of white supremacy and as well as the tool of seeing our blackness as an exception. Like we can mm-hmm. somehow earn our way out of racism by going to the right schools, getting the right education, making the right amount of money. And I'm putting this all in quotations. Like we can somehow escape the grip of white supremacy 
that is on our lives if we just did certain things. White people tell us this and we internalize that and then we weaponize that against our own people. So white supremacy, what's so devastating about it is that it will have our own people working against us. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so painful about the anti-blackness. And so that right there, it is heartbreaking. And, you know, that's why I say in my work, it's not just the black people who you like. It's not just the ones who are saying things that align with your religion or how you view sexuality or, you know, it's not just those. It's, it's, it's everyone. It's the sex workers. It's the, the poor folks. It's the ones who didn't graduate from anything. All of us. You need to want to hear and amplify all these perspectives and voices in fighting for all Black folks and people of color, not just the ones you think deserve to be a part of society, because that's, mm-hmm. that's just another feature of white culture, that folks have to earn their humanity. Folks have to earn their morality and earn their dignity, I should say, not morality, but their, their dignity. And, and if, if by, by these standards that are so impossible and dehumanizing in and of themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and so it is heartbreaking to when black people do it, when we do it to each other. Um, but I hold a certain kind of space for black people who uphold anti-blackness than I do for white folks and white people who hold white privilege. Because I feel like the reason why, the reason why I hold a different space is that when white people perpetuate racism, it benefits them. Mm-hmm. When black people perpetuate racism, it just further benefits white people. It's, to our, it's still to our own demise. And so I hold this space of like cis or bro or non-binary, whatever person, black person, we need to heal, mm-hmm. you know, and our journey for healing is very different than white folks healing from internalized, internalized white supremacy. Cause white folks need to heal from that too. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the process is different. Mm-hmm. Yes. So speaking in terms of like healing within the black community, once you recognize that someone, you know, is sadly performing in like anti-blackness, you know, how, like, how are we able to give each other space in that way? Just to kind of continue that conversation. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm actively working on this myself, you know, because so, okay. So here's a couple of things that I do for myself. I am very intentional about boundaries and I do not tolerate, tolerate in my, in my direct interactions, anti-blackness from anyone. And so I shut it down. I might um, decide to disengage from the relationship. Um, But when it comes to black folks and our anti-blackness, we are very resistant to acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. We are very resistant to seeing that. Um, and I am not the one who will go around individually trying to point out 
Black folks, anti-Blackness directly. Mm -hmm. I'll share my messages about my own experiences and that oftentimes will start a conversation. Mm -hmm. And then we can get curious and we can talk about it because there have been a number of Black women who will be in my inbox like, wow, when you shared that, that really was eye-opening for me and that was, you know, really hope that, that helped me to see how I internalized that myself. But I, ha I just really take this cautious approach when trying to um, point out and bring awareness to on an individual level, unless I have a close relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I still won't like, if the person is, is talking to me and they're directly saying things, I will stop that. Like, no, that's I'll call it what it is and if we want to have a conversation we can have a conversation but if I'm privy to it if it's in my if it's happening with me then I call that I will call that out and I'll stop that um because one of the things that is so challenging with white supremacy and uncovering anti-blackness is that it often operates under the guise of other things that on the surface seem socially acceptable mm -hmm. You know, like diet culture, for example. Right. You know? or, or grind culture. <laughs> grind culture, capitalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, all of that. Hustle. Don't sleep until you die. I mean, you're going to die because you're not sleeping. So it's, it's just, it's really complicated. But it's worth it to do the work within yourself so that you can be, come from a place of grace and um compassion when we're dealing with each other yeah and with yourself when you uncover your own internalized anti-blackness that stuff i have you ready to ball up in a corner somewhere and not go outside for weeks and it's like wait a minute no 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 if i'm gonna hold space for white people to change and uncover their racism and and i certainly can hold space for me mm -hmm. and i can certainly hold space for my own growth and education and healing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I certainly am going to continue to share about anti-Blackness and how we, as Black folks, embody that and how we perpetuate that and talk about my own journey. Um, but I'm careful to publicly call out a Black person mm -hmm. um, for something, because I feel like that then with the white gaze, you know, yeah. that just weaponizes them to come and they'll, wep they'll weaponize me against, like it just can turn into a whole mess that mm -hmm. I personally don't want to facilitate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <sighs> it's a I lot. A huge sigh. Cause it definitely is a lot to unpack and dismantle. And it's also, very surprising to say, you know, that anti-blackness exists, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that, like, a perfect example of that is like black women going into the workforce, right? Mm -hmm. And and our hair, right? Like, if you had to mm -hmm. think of anti-blackness and how to like scale it down to the simplest of things. It's being forced to get a perm right. because people don't understand our hair or they claim it's a distraction. And if you wanted to even go even further back 
of how black women had to wear head coverings. Yeah. You know, to avoid the white gaze. You know what yeah. I mean? And so anti-black blackness does not necessarily have to be this huge grandiose thing. It could be something right. as simple as your hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, anytime anti-blackness in the, the most simplest way is anytime you feel like anything that is who you are, like at your hair, your how you show up in the world, your body, your skin, your hair, your dreams, your mm-hmm. aspirations, your children, your family, anything about who you are and that is associated with your blackness, your identity as a black person is less than or doesn't measure up mm-hmm. to Eurocentric standards to white culture. Anytime you feel that you need to change your body, change the way you speak, change the way you eat, change the way that you communicate with your children so that it is more appeasing to the white gaze, so that it is more affirming to the white gaze. When you really get investigative and you interrogate yourself why you are doing what you're doing and who told you to do that and what are you hoping to get out of what you're doing. Oftentimes we do this to align ourselves with whiteness as a survival tactic. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and so th- it's not necessarily, oh, we hate ourselves because we hate ourselves. We, 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 we begin to hate things about ourselves because we're told to hate those things. But we also begin to try to change things about ourselves because we're told to change those things in order to get something out of, out of society that we want, whether that be a job, whether that be a family, whether that be a relationship, a connect, like we still have, we're still human beings. We still want and have the same needs right. as anyone else. But the way that we have to go about them is often at our own detriment. It's often at our own internalized oppression. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so devastating about it. Mm-hmm. It's like almost like we have to participate in some sort of self-mutilation in order to have some sense of belonging. And, and that is kind of where the disgust that I feel actually comes from. Like, why is it that I have to change parts of who I am in order for you to feel comfortable around me? Right, right. Like some people say, oh, I'm colorblind. Why do you have to avoid noticing <laughs> that I'm black? What the right. hell? Right. <laughs> what, what is wrong with being black? Like, you why, do you, why do you think that's a compliment? That's not a right. compliment at all. It's an it's, insult. It's a huge insult. And that actually makes me want to segue into talking about white women or just women who identify with white privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, because... If we look in history, we see that, you know, white supremacy, it's not only performed by white men. Like, yes, it benefits white men, but it's also able to stand strong because of the support of white women. And like, you know, this is not a history lesson. Like, you know, we're not going to spend 30 minutes, Mm -hmm. even though it takes way longer than that to understand that. But I think that, you know, there needs to be some sort of responsibility and accountability from white women absolutely to really just do better right um and mm-hmm. you know with the last week or so you know with amy cooper or karen's in general which i just want to say this tangent i think that the fact that the black community has been able to create these 
archetypes or stereotypes, you know, Karen's or Becky's or Kevin's or Sam's. And Brad and Chad and Susan. Brad, Chad and Susan. <laughs> I think it, it kind of makes me laugh and feel warm hearted because even in the midst of pain, we're still able to find some sort of joy. <laughs> we always do. Always we do. always do. You know, and so I, I just wanted to share that because I, I think that just shows the resiliency and, and also mm-hmm. leads to hope for the future. But going back to white women, I find that, you know, with the last few inc- incidences, um, that white women are finally, at least in, in my circle, I can't speak about anybody else, are finally starting to say something. And, and that's cool. Yeah. But for me, it's just not enough. Like, no, of course not. Just, you know, like you need to do better, you know, like it's taking you how long? And so mm-hmm. not to make this a, you know, an anger troop, but... Ain't nothing wrong with anger. Ain't nothing wrong with anger. nothing wrong with anger. You're absolutely right. Fuck the NPC. But I think that, (laughs) (laughs) like, what can or what should, you know, you kind of spoke about this earlier um, with the assumptions of, you know, feeling powerless. Like, how can I do this in my own family, in my own community? Like, without getting into your educational um, programs, like what are two things that white women should be doing like right now? Especially if you wanted to just cater specifically to the creative space, mm-hmm. being on social, social media, Instagram, when we voice our transgressions, but also making sure that they're not just posting Ugh. emojis and Listen. I'm sorry for your loss. Listen. Like, the system is working the way that it should. So if you don't like how this is happening, you have to put in a little bit more work. So I would love it if you could just share one thing that yeah. white women should be doing in order to dismantle these, these issues. Okay. The so let me system. use, let me use an analogy because I yeah. love analogies. Anybody who's been in my programs know I will use an analogy in a minute. So let's just pretend for a moment that, a white woman comes into her house, right? Her house that her grandfather, grandfather, grandfather built and passed down to her. She comes into her house and she's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and make dinner. I'm going to have some friends over. Okay. So she makes dinner. She, you know, gets all the things together and then the friends come in. So there's two white people and a black person. These are her friends. She cares about them. Wonderful. They all, they're, they're, they're here in this house that her grandfather, grandfather, grandfather built. And so when she gets, they, when they get in the two white friends, they sit down comfortably in chairs that they feel great. But then the, the chair that she gives to the black friends got a little wiggle to it. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's not really that great, but you know, the black person is like, you know what? Well, I'll just make the best of it. Mm-hmm. So then when we go to make, dinner or pass out dinner she gives two white friends gives them a biscuit give each of them food and all that but then she's like oh i think i've ran out of um you know food i'm sorry i i I don't have anything really left to give you i'll just give you maybe i'll just give you this like leftover little piece of little bread but meanwhile everybody has more than what they need 
Mm-hmm. They have more than what they need to have more than enough. And this person is sitting in this uncomfortable chair. They um, now don't have anything to eat. And you've invited me here. Right. But you're, you're telling me that you, you can't accommodate even though you have more than enough. And so what white women need to do is one, acknowledge that despite the fact that you did not build the house that you're living in, Okay, so you didn't create these racial narratives. You didn't create this racist system. You're still thriving and living in it. You're still benefiting from it. And you're still making sure that your white folks that you build and connect with are taken care of and are getting more than what they deserve. Meanwhile, you'll keep black folks around just for the sake of saying that you're diverse Mm -hmm. or that you are woke, but you're not doing anything to redistribute resources. And so what white women need to do is when they bring in us and when, when acknowledge that, first of all, y'all brought us over here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there were, now there is some understanding that black folks and indigenous people obviously were here before 1619 and even some black folks were here as well. But for the, for the bulk of the black people who came here, came through the transatlantic slave trade. And so we, we're not asking for more than what we deserve. We just are demanding what is ours and what we have a right to. We deserve to be able to eat, to be able to have what we need to thrive and to be comfortable and to live without the constant pain and suffering that y'all have positioned us in because the two white, the chairs that the white people were sitting in, she gave those chairs to them and made sure I got the one that was not comfortable, that was not the best. And that's exactly what happened when you had the building of um, apartments that turned into these ghettos and then mm-hmm. created suburban neighborhoods. Y'all pushed us into those neighborhoods and then blame us for having higher cases of asthma and cancer and all those things. But we are literally living in those neighborhoods that we are barred into and are zoned for industrial buildings and construction that put out these to- toxic and harmful um, pollutants into the environment, but then y'all blame us for, for that. And so what white women need to be doing is one, acknowledging their history, but they also need to be about redistributing resources. You don't need five biscuits. Okay. You don't need that. How about you get one? I get one. So-and-so get one. Then we all have enough. And that's what anti-racism is about is redistributing. Who are we redistributing it from? We're redistributing from white folks because 80 to 90% of the wealth they hold. Mm-hmm. And so it needs to be redistributed. So white women, you need to be talking about this, but not just, okay, so let's, this is what white people will do. Then the black person who's sitting at the table, like, oh, I'm hungry. Like, what's the hell? You brought me over here and you, the food, you ain't got enough. Like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and leave. No, 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 don't leave. I'm, just, I'm so sorry you're hurting. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so, I'm so sorry you're hungry. And then they just look at you. Mm-hmm. I'm so, I'm so, well, well then if you sorry, I'm hurting, why aren't you doing anything to change it? Mm-hmm. You know why? It's not like we are out here writing these like mystery books that you can't find. There is no absence of information on what needs to be done and how to go about do it, doing it. Black people have been writing about this, talking about this from the beginning. We're nothing that I'm saying or teaching is revolutionary, brand new. It's all been said and shaped and said before. 
you know, and so y'all just not, they just not listening. Right. They don't want, don't want to. So white women, what you need to be doing is one, acknowledging your history, acknowledging the benefit and the privilege that you have by just being born into a racial hierarchy that positions you at the top, or at least one notch underneath white men. Mm-hmm. But you also need to actually actively engage in the redistributing of resources and power. And that's going to cost money and time. And it's going to be far more than sharing an Instagram post and writing, read this. No, you need to read it and you need to apply what's in it for yourself and share the damn biscuits. Y'all don't need five biscuits. <laughs> Hell, then they be wanting to be gluten-free. Tell them some, I don't, I don't like carbs. Okay. Well, <laughs> how about we eliminate racism and keep the carbs? Hello. Well, that's the thing is like, I think when people hear a distribution of resources that that now means that they have less and so therefore they can't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and, have, that's, and that's, and that's never the problem. That's, no, it's that's the not. issue. No, you, they feel like they're going to lose, but how are you going to lose right. something that wasn't yours in the first place? Exactly. How are you going to lose the car when you stole it? You'd be like, oh, that's my car. You, girl, you know you stole that car. How are you going to be mad when I come back and be like, give me my car back? <laughs> pay, pay me, or at least pay me for it, like reparations. Reparation. Okay, you, you driving the car. You know what? You didn't pass it on. Pay me what you owe me. I don't owe you nothing. I, my grandfather gave me this car. He stole it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's like white people came in and just destroyed the indigenous folks and killed and murdered and pushed them off this land and then went and just and had black folks building and toiling and and making money for them you know like this country was built on the labor of black folks and at the expense of black people indigenous people i mean literally lives lost and murdered and taken at the hands of white supremacy. And then when we talk about it and want to say, hey, you need to repair the harm that's been done, people want to say, oh, well, that was the past. But mm-hmm. if it was the past, we, if, and if the past was confined to the past, then we would not be experiencing the past today. We are literally living history. It lives with us. James Baldwin talks about that. It, it literally lives with us. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not over. And also to, to add on to that point, it takes three generations to actually hear from generational trauma. Mm-hmm. So this is not something that just happened and it's a blip in time. This is actually mm-hmm. a huge percentage of America's history. Mm-hmm. A Tell huge it. percentage. Tell it. So to then just say to someone, almost dismissing how they feel and then also dismissing the mental ramifications Mm -hmm. of dealing with what their ancestors dealt with is completely fucked up. (laughs) And we've never, and we've never had a space to heal. Right. Never. We've always just had to keep going on. And that's what I mean by how white culture has negatively influenced black culture in multiple ways. Because think about how in black culture, even talking about mental health is taboo. Mm-hmm. Even talking about dealing with your, your trauma is like, we just going to take that to the altar or growing up wrong with you. Like, we don't even, we don't even know how to hold space mm-hmm. for one another. We've been conditioned to just Chuck it up. Just be that strong black woman. And that in and of itself is dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And another stereotype 
you know, I, I know you have to to go because you're you're doing this work. And and before we end the conversation, like I just want to publicly say this because I mean I've said this to you on, you know, several occasions. But I just really appreciate you doing this work and just having the emotional intelligence to have these conversations um, and using your platform to continue protecting you know, black and brown communities, indigenous communities, um, because I mean, that is a calling. Um, And I know not everyone, including myself, um, is not able to to hold that space without wanting to slap someone in the face, which I'm sure you do. (laughs) But I would actually follow through. (laughs) So therefore, I, I appreciate you and the work. Um, Thank you. We can talk about this. We can talk about this forever, but I we really could. Know. We could. But let me say, before yeah. you wrap it up, let me say, because I don't think I got a chance to hit on this when it was like, but what about you know those of us that don't are on that are not on the front lines and all that? Like, there shouldn't be a level of um, guilt or shame for not showing up in your blackness one way or another. Um, you know, oh, well, I'm not out here doing this and I must not be black or, oh, I'm not really being a part. Like one of the main things that we need to do is we need to focus on healing mm-hmm. and we need to focus on in these, dismantling our internalized anti-blackness and not get in the way and make it harder for those of us who are actively engaging and dismantling white supremacy from multiple different levels, not get in each other's way, not trip each other up, not tear each other down, not um, try to derail or stall each other because of our own internalized blackness. Like if we could focus on that, that in and of itself would be a part of a huge part of our black liberation is that we can support each other more fully and more dignified if we could deal with the ways that we cause ourselves and one another harm. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that because I'm sure, you know, there's some people that are listening, black and brown men and women that are listening to this podcast that really want to figure out how to help. Um, and, and, and understanding that there's different levels to this and that mm-hmm. we all are able to, play a substantial role regardless of whatever that may look like for that person exactly and that and it's an individual level but the 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 smallest thing you can do is like cheer on the folks who are out here on the front lines Mm -hmm. cheer them on let them know because it gets lonely out here and it gets really discouraging cheer them on even if you don't you know agree with everything they're doing or how they're doing it but i mean if you're not out there doing it with them sis like at least you can do is like pass them a glass of water you know, like support some kind of way. Yeah. So do you have any final notes specifically on just your hope for the future? And again, this is something that we've talked about um, in personal like conversations, but any final notes that you have to share? I would just like to say that one, I appreciate you bringing me on today and for having this conversation. I appreciate your vulnerability and just sharing your heart. Um, and I really do hope that people will honor and um, appreciate that. I will say that. And my, my thing is just that my hope, my hope, my hope is that we cannot be 
what's the word I want to say? We cannot be distracted by the bright and shiny things that can give us the perception of progress and that we should just let things be and let, and let it just, this is enough that we, that we not look at the, the exceptional folks who are out here doing things that are great in the black community and see that as, Oh, that sign of progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's enough, mm-hmm. but that we stay committed to the legacy of black liberation mm-hmm. and that we do everything within ourselves to heal and to support the healing of black folks, people of color, um, ultimately so that we can all be free. We all can be free to live in our humanity. Like that is, that is my dream. I know that I won't fully experience that in my lifetime, but I'm going to do my part to continue on that, that journey and to add to that process that will someday be materialized in a future generation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like my ancestors did prior, the things that they did and the, the mountains that they climbed and the bricks that they laid and the work that they did has everything to do with where I am right now. Mm-hmm. And so it's my responsibility when it's my calling to show up and do my part. Mm-hmm. Monique, thank you so much for this amazing and hopefully healing conversation. Um, before we officially, officially wrap it up, please um, share with folks how they can find you and also learn more about all of the amazing programs that you offer. Great. Thank you. I'm out here in these internet streets at moniquemelton.com or you can find me on Instagram at mo, M-O-E, motivate, mo, motivate. And that's where I say I'm usually on Instagram. Don't go looking for me on Facebook because you <laughs> won't get much. <laughs> you won't get much there. <laughs> Monique, thank you so much again. I really appreciate you and I will see you on the gram. All right, sis. Have a good one. And on that note, this wraps up another edition of Real Talk with Tamara. Real talk for real women. If you like what you've heard, please share with Reckless Abandon. And don't forget to follow on iTunes or Spotify so you don't miss out on the next episode. Until next time, remember to grind with grace and love, peace, and do you, boo.